Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 50 of The Mark Ice Show. Thank you for joining me, and I've got a lot to get out of my system tonight. So I'm coming at you middle of the night. It's after 3 a.m. here. I, I usually do a lot of my episodes pretty late, but this one I wasn't planning on doing one tonight, but there was a lot in the news this week, especially with... Uh, the American Health Care Act resurfacing again, the Republican revisions to Obamacare. And I'm just, I'm pretty tired. I'm, I'm pretty worn out every day. It feels like what the left especially wants, and it's not just the left. It, it's a lot of the American populace. But you see it coming out with all of these diehard supporters of the Affordable Care Act, of Obamacare, coming out and basically saying time and time again that they are entitled to this certain level of health care and that anybody that wants to take this level of health care away from them is a maniac, is a sociopath, does not care about people, does not have compassion whatsoever. And this is why time and time again we say, once entitlements are put into place, they're very, very difficult to eradicate. People get used to them and they now think that this is their birthright, that this is what they deserve, and that if that's taken away, it's theft. But they don't recognize that for them to have gotten that entitlement in the first place, there needed to be theft from another party. And I've talked about Obamacare time and time again on this podcast. I don't want to go into an entire rant about Obamacare, though I very well may at some point in this episode. But it seems like what most of the American populace wants is they want a segment of us to just be standing there with our wallets open and say, take whatever you want. I don't deserve any of my own earnings. You are entitled to what you need. Take what you need, and then I get the scraps that are left over. And that's what it feels like. I know that we're not quite at those levels of taxation yet, but if you look at the average American paying 25 to 30% of, it, of, uh, of its income in overall taxes, and that's probably a low estimate. It's probably at least in the 30s, I would say, at least in the low 30s. Um, <clears throat> I saw an estimate that was 32% when you take state and local taxes and everything into effect. So I know it's not like 90% of my earnings are being taken or 90% of the average American's earnings are being taken. But it feels like we are trending in that direction. And we're we're slowly working our way there, but I think we are getting there. And I don't know how to fight it. That's one of the reasons why I started this podcast kind of as an outlet as a way to hopefully sway some people's hearts and minds out there to, you know, maybe they, they thought the way that I do on a particular issue, uh, on a particular issue. And this pushed them over the edge to thinking in that particular way about an issue. Um, maybe they'd never even considered the opinions that I put forth. And I hope that maybe this would cause them to, to rethink how they think about the world. I know that I've undergone a transformation over time from being really a typical progressive-leaning leftist, I guess you could say, to being more of a libertarian at, at, at this point in time. And I think that I'm here to stay. Uh, and I was having a discussion today with, 
with a friend of mine and was talking about, I know exactly the arguments that these leftists can bring up and how you never really can quote unquote win an argument with them or they will never concede because there's, there's always more money out there to be taken. There's always a, a target that they abhor and that they would like to take more from. So we were talking about how, well, when interest rates rise, which is going to happen, you know, this is a, this is a low interest rate environment that hasn't been seen before in human history. This, this prolonged near zero interest rate environment. So it's not going to last forever. And the United States is eventually going to have to pay significantly more to service its national debt. And it's only going to keep racking up more and more national debt. So it means that that number, that debt service number is going to be even higher than we'd be calculating now uh, based on a, a normalized interest rate. Uh, we were talking about that and how entitlements are going to spin out of control. And he said, how can people, if you lay these numbers out in front of them, how could they not realize what a disaster this is going to be? How can they not admit that something's wrong and that something needs to change? I said, this is exactly how they would respond. So I said, I'm going to respond as they would. They would say, well, the rich aren't paying their fair share. They have all this money out there. They make millions of dollars a year. We can just tax them more and that will fund everything that we need to fund. Then he said, well, what if you said, well, the rich only earn this amount of money, so even taxing all of that won't bring in enough to fund what we need, to fund or to fund what the government has committed to spend. I said, well, then they would say an income tax doesn't go far enough. We need a wealth tax. We need to tax the capital that's out there. These rich people have all this money just sitting around in, in investments and in houses, and we should be taxing that every year. That's what they'd be saying. So there's always an additional source of money. There's always something that these people want to tax or some activity that they want to tax further. And it just, it becomes, well, I guess I'm going to say it, it becomes very taxing. I don't want to use the same word I used before, but it's in a different context. Uh, it becomes very just tiring having to fight these battles all the time. And there's nothing you can really do about it. When these decisions are made on a national level in many instances, I know a lot of some taxation, some level of taxation is done at the state and local level. So there are some things you can do within your state legislator or within your state legislature or within um, your municipality or within your county to reduce your tax burden somewhat or to have some control over your tax burden. But most of the taxes that most people pay are to the federal government. And how much control do we have over ha over what happens there? Maybe very little, but probably none. I would say effectively zero control over what happens in terms of taxation. And seeing what people have to say about the Affordable Care Act and talking about how people that are against the Affordable Care Act and and do not believe that insurance companies should be forced to cover people with pre-existing conditions, they equate that to murder. And they're using some of the some of the most extreme language, like more than I could possibly think of if I was trying to come up with with something that its only its only purpose was to try to get an emotional response out of people. 
That's what I'm seeing everywhere today. I'm sure any of you that are out there on Twitter or Facebook or anything have seen very much the same thing. Basically, if you don't support the Affordable Care Act, or better yet, from their perspective, single-payer health care, then you are a sociopath, and you do, not, you do not care one iota about your fellow man. And that is making so many assumptions about, A, what drives people, about you know what, what people's personality is, what they actually think about other people. And B, it's taking this echo chamber where, in a lot of instances, these people don't really talk to anybody that thinks differently from them. So they think, I'm around all of these smart, college-educated people, and they all believe that the Affordable Care Act is a good thing, or is at least a step in the right direction, and that single-payer health care is the eventual ideal. And they say, if all these smart, college-educated people think the same way about this issue, how could that possibly be wrong? How could there possibly be another right way to think about this issue? When in reality, there are plenty of brilliant people out there that have predicted many of the problems to come about uh, due to the Affordable Care Act and see very different solutions. But they don't interact with those people. And if they were to interact with those people, they would immediately, due to the effects of that echo chamber, they would immediately dismiss those people as being sociopaths. So just the hysteria surrounding this and what people assume others can bear the cost of, I don't know how much longer the, uh, productive people in society can continue to, to withstand that. You know, I don't know, can I go another, another 50 years with this kind of rhetoric just getting worse and worse? Because it's, it's only going to get more extreme. People are only going to demand more and more. Once you put an entitlement out there, it's established. It's very, very difficult to get rid of it. And only more and more entitlements will come forward because that's what politicians like to do. Politicians like to give something to certain groups that they know will garner them more support than the groups that it's being taken away from. That's what politicians do. It's pol that's what politicians have always done. So that's really where I am right now. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do a podcast and wanted to vent some of my frustration here. But there also is an informative aspect of this particular episode of the podcast. I actually, and I don't know how many other people out there did, it's, it's relatively short by congressional standards. But I went out there and read the amendments to the Affordable Care Act, which are being called the American Health Care Act. But it's really just making revisions making changes to the Affordable Care Act. So this is not a new, unique bill. All that it does is it makes changes to the Affordable Care Act. So I called it this in my prior episode where I went into some details about particular features of the American Health Care Act. Uh, and I called it Obamacare Light. And I had taken that from, I believe Justin Amash was the first one to say it, but you had the, the Thomas Massey's and the Rand Paul's of of the DC world coming out and saying the same thing. I think that was the general sentiment among libertarians and libertarian-leaning Republicans that this is really just a just a rebranding of Obamacare, maybe couched in some more uh, some more conservative-friendly language to make them more likely to support it. But 
not much is changing here with this bill. And I'm going to read a couple direct excerpts from the bill. I recommend if you want to if you want to get through the hysteria surrounding what this bill actually says, and it's impossible to if you're just trying to go to Google News or some news aggregator and read what what most of these news outlets are saying. I mean, go to go to Salon or Slate and try to read some of the articles that they have about about this. Or if you go to some of the more Trump supporting news outlets, they're touting this as being some sort of drastic change from Obamacare. So they're also to blame for pushing misinformation on this bill. But it's making really minor changes, in my opinion, to Obamacare, maybe taking out some of the more unpopular aspects of the bill. But most of it is staying very much the same. And as I talked about in my prior episode, which I forget which number it was, I'll link to it though in the uh, suggested readings, referenced articles portion of, uh, of the website post for this podcast. As I said in that podcast, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, had some sort of internal consistency there where you kind of needed the individual mandate. So the individual mandate is a is a penalty that people pay if they do not have adequate health insurance for the year. They pay that to the IRS when they when they file their taxes. If that's not in place, then what you're going to have is is you're not going to have young healthy people being actually buying into the insurance market if it's a bad deal for them to subsidize the older and sicker people with pre-existing conditions because if people with pre-existing conditions are now going to get insurance without um, whereas in the past insurance would have been out of their price range it means that they're getting something for nothing effectively they're paying a lower rate than what their risk would indicate so the insurance companies if they want to continue to operate continue to be in existence they need other customers to now pay higher rates to make up for those customers who are who are being subsidized or to, to subsidize those other customers so that they're able to pay lower rates than they otherwise would pay lower premiums than they otherwise would and if you take that individual mandate away but if you keep the um the requirement for insurance companies to not differentiate customers based on risk so they need to treat people with pre-existing conditions the same way that they treat people without pre-existing conditions then you can see how that system is going to unravel pretty quickly. So I think the Republicans wanted here to have their cake and eat it too, to be able to say, well, there's still the requirement there that they need to that they need to uh, take on people with pre-existing conditions, but the individual mandate's no longer there. And, and nobody was complaining about the pre-existing conditions part because that sounds good. Obviously, in a perfect world, if we weren't talking about scarcity of resources – and if we weren't talking about companies, you know, needing to turn a profit in order to survive, then of course I'd rather people be able to pay less for something than they otherwise would have to. But that's not how the real world works. So when you ask somebody a question, do you think that people with pre-existing conditions should be discriminated against in the health insurance market? Of course most people are going to say, no, they should not be discriminated against because discrimination has taken on a completely negative connotation in American society where we think nobody should be discriminated against for any reason. But 
if you think about any sort of insurance that you buy that's not completely distorted by government law like health insurance, you are differentiated based on risk. When you go and buy car insurance, you're, first of all, the, the kind of car you're driving, how much it would cost to repair, what its total value is, that's factored in, your driving history. So everybody has a different risk score, uh, your age, you know, your profile, young male. So the demographic that I'm in are going to be paying the, well, you know, maybe when I was 16 to 18, I'd be paying a higher rate than I am now at, at 24. But my demographic now is paying among the highest car insurance rates because this demographic gets some more accidents, tend to be more aggressive drivers. And even if you have a perfect driving record, you are still brought down by that profile. That's how every insurance market works. So you're charged according to your risk uh, and you're discriminated against based on certain things. Many of those which uh, many of those are out of your control as well. Just like pre-existing conditions are in many cases out of people's control. But that's how insurance works. So you see some of these polls where they're saying that, do you think people with pre-existing conditions should be able to be discriminated against or be able to be charged different rates by insurance companies? Of course, you're going to have a lot of people answering no without really thinking what that requires. Sorry to go on that on that ramp. But basically, I'm going to go into it here. The specific language from this takes away the individual mandate, one of the most unpopular aspects of Obamacare, takes away the employer mandate, so requiring employers to provide health insurance up to a certain level, so up to a certain adequate standard as judged by the Obamacare legislation. So first I'll read what the individual mandate revision says. And I won't read the the section numbers because it's not going to mean anything to you. I will have a link up there. So if you want to find it, you can go ahead, look at the references yourself. But um, in general section, blah, 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 the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 is amended. This is the individual mandate portion, by the way. In paragraph 2B3, by striking 2.5% and inserting 0%. And in paragraph three, by striking $695 in subparagraph A and inserting $0 and by striking subparagraph D. And these were to be made effective by December 31st, 2015. So effective by the 2016 tax year. So the taxes that people just filed. So basically what this did was it struck out all of the language saying, um, you know, this is the amount of... Um, of penalty, so the penalty is reduced to zero. Uh, that's what this says here. So all the language is still there about the penalty and everything, but instead of the penalty being set at this certain level, it's now set at zero. So it doesn't mean anything now. You can have all the language in the world, but if the penalty is zero, then it doesn't matter what you know what the language said before that. It's not going to apply to anybody. It's not going to punish anybody. So if the individual mandate is gone with the revisions here to the Affordable Care Act. Next, Section 206, this is right after that. This is the employer mandate. In general, paragraph one of section blah, 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 of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 is amended by inserting $0 in the case of months beginning after December 31st, 2015, after $2,000. 
to paragraph one of section blah, 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 of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 is amended by inserting $0 in the case of months beginning after December 31st, 2015, after $3,000. Once again, this is made effective after December 31st, 2015. So for the 2016 ta tax year or fiscal year. Um, and this is the same thing. This is saying that the employer's the level of adequate coverage that they have to provide their employees once they reach that 50 employee threshold once they become a quote-unquote large employer according to the Affordable Care Act. Now, there is no requirement there. There's no level that they have to reach of, uh, of, of insurance that they're providing. So the employer mandate is gone. This is another one of the most unpopular aspects of Obamacare. And... You know, many of the things laid against it were that companies were intentionally not growing beyond that 50 employer mark or that 50 employee mark because they didn't want to have to now comply with all these additional new rules and regulations with the Affordable Care Act. Also, that it hurt businesses that were already established and that now needed to take on additional costs that they hadn't had to before. Uh, maybe they have a workforce that doesn't want employer-provided health insurance for whatever reason, would rather the cash up front. Well, now basically the government has made that decision for the employer and the employee. So rather than compensating your employee with additional cash, you are now forced to provide a certain level of health insurance to these employees. So the employer mandate is gone as a result of the Affordable Health Care Act or the American Health Care Act. If this is passed, and of course this is still a bill, this has just been passed by the House, has not been passed by the Senate, and it will be an arduous process in the Senate. I would be surprised if it passes the Senate at this point, especially seeing the outcries after the House passed it through, and there probably will be additional changes made as well. It's another part of the hysteria that is driving me crazy, that people are acting like this is changing tomorrow. A, that's not happening and also that this is some fundamental change they're acting like in one fell swoop obamacare medicare medicaid are are gone starting monday or something like that and that's not what is happening whatsoever with these revisions to the affordable care act and this is not a repeal and replace this is not repealing the affordable care act this is tinkering around the edges of the affordable care act so another portion of this, and I discussed this in my prior episode, but here's the direct language. So I kind of did an overview at that point in time, just introducing people to, to what, this, what this bill actually said um, and just kind of hitting the major points. But this is, this is the language itself. So this is encouraging continuous health insurance coverage. So this is really the, rather than having the individual mandate, this is this is what they have. This is the penalty for not having continuous health uh, health coverage. In general, notwithstanding Section 2701, subject to the succeeding provisions of this section, a health insurance issuer offering health insurance coverage in the individual individual or small group market shall, in the case of an individual who is an applicable policyholder of such coverage with respect to an enforcement period applicable to enrollments for a plan year beginning with plan year 2019, or in the case of enrollments during a special enrollment period beginning with plan year 2018, 
increase the monthly premium rate otherwise applicable to such individual for such coverage during each month of such period by an amount determined under paragraph two. And then paragraph two is the amount of the penalty. The amount determined under this paragraph for an applicable policyholder enrolling in health insurance coverage described in paragraph one for a plan year with respect to each month during the enforcement period applicable to enrollments for such plan year is the amount that is equal to 30% of the monthly premium rate otherwise applicable to such applicable policyholder for such coverage during each month. So that's a ton of nonsense, I'm sure, trying to listen to me say that. That's why I said it quickly. But basically what this is, is if you do not hold continuous coverage, and then now you choose to go and get coverage, you pay 30% additionally beyond what you normally would. So there's a 30% penalty there. But the insurance companies are still not able to discriminate against you due to pre-existing conditions. So you have the incentive still under the American Health Care Act here, if this is passed into law, to not have insurance and then whenever you get sick, you can go, you can pay a 30% penalty, but that's peanuts compared to what it would cost you if you did that in an actual free market, if you didn't have insurance, if you waited till your house started to burn down and then you try to go out and buy fire insurance or try to go, go buy homeowner's insurance and then all they charge you was 30% additionally beyond the absurdly low premiums that you pay for homeowner's insurance. I mean, imagine if, if that's how homeowner's insurance worked. Nobody would have homeowner's insurance. You would just go the minute something went wrong, the minute a thief came to your house and robbed you, or the minute you had an entire room destroyed by by a leaking roof or something, whatever, whatever it is. You would wait until that time, and you'd be more than willing to pay $130 for a year long. No, I, I don't know exactly what the rates are. I have a pretty low rate because I just have an apartment at this point. So I know I pay something like $100 for 12 years and there aren't a ton of assets in our home or anything. So I didn't want to insure for a whole lot of money, but say $130 for a 12 month period rather than $100. Everybody's going to go out and do that rather than pay the continual $100 every year and at least nine years out of 10, you're not going to use it at all. You know, probably more like 29 years out of 30, you're not going to use that homeowner's insurance at all. It's just there for peace of mind purposes. So you're not hit with an instant five or $10,000 bill due to something going wrong. So that's what this is saying. That's the replacement for the individual mandate. That's the incentive for people to continuously hold coverage but you know i think it almost makes it easier under this plan under um, under the republican plan here to not continuously hold coverage because that's not that's not a significant penalty and you know if you're just trying to to benefit yourself and try to find loopholes in this bill I think that is what's going to happen if this becomes law. Um, so those are some of the major heavy hitters. There's there's more language there. You can read through the entire thing. Those are the major points that I that I pulled out. I, I feel like if I go into any more detail, read anything more from this bill, I'm going to turn off everybody that hasn't already turned this off because they feel like it's it's too wonkish or whatever. But this isn't meant to be wonkish. 
we luckily have these resources out there. One of the great things about the internet where these things are posted and despite, I think our, our government officials, despite politicians not wanting us to really know the full information, not really know exactly what's going on and to rely on what the media is feeding us about, about a particular story, we can go out and read the source material ourselves. And I had to do that because everything was so sensational out there. I could not find a rational source to say what really was happening. So I'm going to get off talking about the actual bill itself, the language um, in the American Healthcare Act, and talk a little more about the reactions here. So I've had some interactions with Kurt Eichenwald. I don't know if, if any of you are on Twitter fairly popular on Twitter. He gained more notoriety because somebody sent him a strobing gif and he sued the person for uh, because he, he said it caused him a seizure. So they ended up in court calling that gif a deadly weapon. I don't know what ended up happening to the person. I don't know enough about the entire story, but I remember seeing the entire thing unfolding and him threatening the person with legal action and he actually went forward with that with that legal action so that's how a lot of people i think learned about him but he wrote a conspiracy of fools which i have not read but it's about the enron scandal written a few other books he writes for newsweek and vanity i believe um and he's had posts for months about the affordable care act and he is very much in favor of it he is certainly anti-GOP, anti-Republican. Um, by proxy, he's anti-libertarian, getting into arguments with, with libertarians. I've gotten into arguments with him a couple times over the months. Usually it's people in his, uh, in his replies. It's not directly with him. Most of the arguments I've gotten into related to him. Uh, but t- tonight, he posted some pretty vile things, I think. And I took some screenshots of them because I figured they'd be getting deleted. And he deleted at least one of these. But what he said was, as one with pre-existing condition, I hope every GOPer who voted for Trump care sees a family member get long-term condition, lose insurance, and die. Because I want them to be tortured. GOPers only gain empathy when they're t- touched by the consequences. Never before. Then later in the thread, sorry, they want to drink beer celebrating killing people? Then it should be their loved ones who die. I think it's just reprehensible, really. And think about on this podcast, I, I've said what I think about about particular people. I've said what I what I think about Bernie Sanders, what I think about... Elizabeth Warren, what I think about Hillary Clinton, um, and a lot of the reprehensible things that they believe. But have you ever heard me wish death on anybody? And I haven't even thought that. If I thought it, I would say it on this podcast. This is a unedited, pretty free-flowing, uh, you know, stream of consciousness type of thing most of the time. And I can't even imagine getting to that point. But, and, uh, and of course, what, what Eichenwald would say, if he heard me say that, and he, he would say, well, you just you just haven't felt what I felt. I have a pre-existing condition, and without Obamacare, I'll 
I'll die and you have not had to feel that pain and you just need to feel that pain to really get to the point where I am. And, you know, I haven't felt that particular pain. I haven't felt the particular pain of being sick and not knowing how to pay for it. But I do know how I would, how I would, how I would react in that situation. I would not react by calling on my elected officials to go and rob from my fellow citizens, to go rob other people, to pay for everything that I want, for everything that I need to get back to health. I'm just not that, that type of person. I think a lot of the people that are drawn to, to libertarian ideals, to more, you know, thinking the, the free market is generally the, the best way to, to handle issues and the, and the best way to raise standards of living is we don't want to be dependent on other people. We don't, we don't want other people to be forced to help us. And we don't want to be forced to help other people. Now, we are human beings, and human beings have a natural tendency to want to help other people, to want to voluntarily help other people. It feels good to help other people. Unless you actually are a sociopath, unless you actually don't feel empathy and you're not able to to connect with another person, you're not able to put yourself in their shoes and empathize with them. That's only a very small portion of the population, though. The rest of us, when you help somebody, it feels good. You want people around you to do better. And you don't need to be forced to do that. So I don't need your forced charity. If I get to that point, if if things really deteriorated to the point where I am in beggar status, I'm not going to go call up my, my legislator, go call up my congressman and say, you need to pass a law to go steal money from that rich person and give it to me. I'm going to go on my hands and knees to that person and say, please, I need your help. I know that um, you're under no obligation to help me, but hopefully this is what I can do for you in the future. This is why I need it out of the goodness of your heart. Can you help me? And if they don't help me, then I am not going to, to begrudge them because they have no obligation to do so. But I think generally people are good. There are bad people, bad things happen, bad things always will happen, but I think on the margin people are good and people want to help other people. And I think one of the fundamental differences between people like Eichenwald is they think people need to be forced to help others. They think that everybody else is going to stand by and watch people die in the streets and watch their children die. And that is just not going to happen. People will voluntarily, through charity, step up, step up to the plate, help their local communities. And that's really where this should be focused. Um, that's where healthcare should be focused is locally. And if you take the power away from the federal government, if you get the federal government out of healthcare, which would be ideal, but it looks like we're not trending in that direction. Everybody wants to have this utopian single-payer system that ever, that people seem to think is so effective in every other country that has it. Um, but if we get the federal government out of healthcare and we allow the, the states to, to do what they want, you know, maybe some states have extreme free markets and very little governmental control over healthcare, and maybe you have other states where the state runs the healthcare system of the state. 
and kind of allow these these 50 different labs of innovation to see what works best. And you have more homogenous groups then that, that think more similarly, figuring out how healthcare can be best addressed in their state. And ideally it would be at a, a smaller level than that. I would hope states would give local municipalities authority where some municipalities, if, if, if you have a bunch of communists living in an area and they want to pool all their resources and they want to live that way, all the power to them. Go for it. Nobody should stand in their way. Um, nobody should put any impediments in their um, in their path to try to achieve that goal. But you shouldn't be trying to impose a one-size-fits-all solution, quote-unquote, from the federal level. That never works. And every time the federal government has tried to do that, it has failed. So to get back to Eichenwald, which is how I kind of got off on this tangent, A, I think he's a despicable person. B, I don't wish him any harm. I hope that whatever his pre-existing condition is, I'm assuming it's related to his epilepsy, I hope that that gets better. I mean, I would never be one of these people to send him a strobe gif or to hope that, you know, things get worse for him because he wished other people harm. I don't think that's a way to, to solve anything. But C... I think he needs to reevaluate how he sees his fellow man. And that doesn't mean go around and always assume that everybody has the best intentions. It doesn't mean go around and be naive. You should be skeptical before, you know, fully trusting somebody. And that's generally how I operate and I think it it's worked pretty well. Or you can you can begrudgingly trust somebody. You can trust somebody but still have one eye open. And, and make sure that they don't screw you over. I think that's the best way to operate. But constantly assuming that people that think differently from you, especially politically, people that think differently from you politically are fundamentally bad people. I think it's just a dangerous way to go about life. And it's one of the reasons why political discussion is so polarizing and why if you bring up politics at uh, family gatherings or with close friends, you're, you're playing with fire. Because it could result in somebody hating you forever because of what you believe about a particular issue. And I think even people that I disagree with on everything politically, I don't necessarily think they're they're bad people. I, I'm not going to jump to that conclusion unless they do things in their everyday life that lead me to believe they are a bad person, which many people I've seen in my life have done that and I have come to that conclusion but until they've done that how they think about an issue I think most people think that the way that they think about the world will help people they think that this is the direction we should be going in because a b and c and I'm right other people are wrong I you know I think most people think that way and so I can't fault them for that I can't fault them for thinking that whatever Whatever their path is to get to their desired outcomes is the best way to do it. But it's when you when you then draw conclusions from that line of thinking to people that think differently from me are bad or must have something wrong because everybody I know thinks the way that I do and they're all smart people. So that must mean that people that think differently are evil and wrong. And that's what, that's what Eichenwald was doing 
in this entire thread. And there were more posts than this. I don't want to read all of them on this podcast. But I think that's a major issue as well. We can't have civil discourse because that's immediately where people jump. Rather than having a discussion about the particular policy issue at hand or the, or the particular issue at hand, they jump to this where, oh, you're against this, that means you hate poor people. Oh, you're against this, that means you just want to subsidize the rich. Oh, you you want this to be put into place, that means that uh, that you're against the country or you're against the military, you know, it could be anything, but people jump to these, jump to these conclusions right away about you as a person and make ad hominem attacks very quickly. And you see it online, many people hiding, hiding behind anonymity, hiding behind the egg profile picture or the fake name on Twitter. You, you see it all the time. So I guess it's inevitable people when they, when they know their names not attached to it, they're going to be vile. And they're going to try to try to get a rise out of people. So I get that that happens, and that's not necessarily completely representative of real life and what actually happens in real life. But you see it all the time in real life too, where people shut down in conversations when they hear that somebody has a particular viewpoint about something because they've been conditioned through these types of things to think that people that hold that view are racists or are bigots or are sexists or are full of hate or are fascists. That's one of the one of the new favorite terms now that everybody that thinks a particular way uh, is a fascist. Basically anybody that, that doesn't accept liberal orthodoxy, according to many people, they are now labeled fascists. So really what my point was where I was trying to lead with that is the the people who were out there trying to come up with the most hysterical headline, the most emotional headline, are trying to talk about how people are going to be dying in the streets due to Trump care. Go go and look at the actual bill. Go and read the actual bill. And look at things are not really changing from Obamacare. You have been duped. People and politicians especially who really want to be anti-Trump have sold you a, a false bill of goods. So go and read what what the bill actually says. And it's not even a real bill. It's revising the Affordable Health uh, the Affordable Care Act. It's revising Obamacare. So the the structure of Obamacare is still in place, and this hasn't even passed yet. So whatever you're thinking is this apocalyptic scenario due to Trump Care hasn't even actually passed into law yet. It still needs to be passed by the Senate, which is looking at least somewhat unlikely, if not very unlikely. And then beyond that, stop assuming that people that do not agree with you on health care or do not agree with you on a particular issue are evil people and want to kill people. If you actually have a civil discussion with these people, you'll see that, and I'm not saying everybody that it, that disagrees with, with the Affordable Care Act is going to have a reasoned response to why they don't like it. A lot of people don't like it because they don't like Obama. That's why they don't like it. But if you if you have a civil discussion with people that actually do somewhat know what they're talking about, they will have some good reasons why they don't like it. And they may point to they don't they don't agree with premiums rising for 
younger, healthier people who also tend to be among the poorest in society because they haven't had decades to build up wealth as, you know, older people are able to. Uh, that's just one example of many, but you'll see that there are, there are reasoned responses and you can have a civil discussion with people. And I also don't want to make the assertion that the same thing doesn't happen on the other side. And right-wingers certainly think that if you if somebody has a left-wing position, that means A, B, and C. That means that, that they're a weakling, they're a snowflake, and uh, they don't know anything about the world. They don't know how the world works. You know, those happen too. So I'm not saying this is an entirely left-wing phenomenon. But if I'm both sides, if we can if we can have some civil discussion, at least we'll improve things. I don't know if, if that will really do anything to quell what I was talking about earlier in the episode when I was discussing how I feel like more and more is demanded out of productive uh, productive citizens every day. And it's, it's only getting worse and worse and it's getting exponentially worse. But at least it, at least that would enable you to go about your everyday life and have conversations with people and be able to talk about issues in the political world without somebody assuming that um, that you're a sociopath or a racist or a bigot or whatever uh, you know whatever term people want to throw out there and assume that you are due to one particular view that you hold. So I guess that's really all that I wanted to hit on today. I apologize really for the extra length of the episode and some of the ranting, but I had to make this episode because just what I, what, what I was reading today out there really drove me crazy. And this podcast is really one of the few ways that I have to go out and vent that frustration. And you can try to argue with people and you can try to get into discussions online or you can talk about, talk about it with people in your everyday life, but sometimes it's easier to just get behind a microphone and talk for 45 minutes here about what you really think and be able to formalize your thoughts uh, in a better way than just kind of ad hoc in discussions with people. So appreciate it. Appreciate you sticking with me if you made it to this point. Thank you for supporting me through 50 episodes. And I, I, I feel pretty proud to have reached this threshold. Most podcasts burn out pretty quickly burn out within the first 10 episodes don't make it out of that single digit range so for us to have made it this far i am pretty proud of that and it's because of people supporting me giving me good ideas giving me quality feedback that i keep doing this so please tell a friend please go out and subscribe if you haven't already i I rely more on those subscriber numbers than i do on the download numbers or than I do on the uh, listen numbers because the, the listen numbers are, are less reliable. So thank you again and have a fantastic weekend. Hopefully you had a good Cinco de Mayo.